Our God and Father, Lord, today we praise you and we glorify your holy name. We thank you for the great privilege that we have to gather freely in this place, to freely proclaim your holy word. O oh Lord, to even hear the sound of your word being read is a tremendous privilege. Not all have this privilege, O oh God. Today we thank you for what you have given to us. O oh Lord, we praise you that you are on the throne of heaven, that you rule over the world and the creation that you have made, that, Lord, you're bringing this world to an expected end, one for which you have planned it, that, Lord, the whole world lies in your hands, and that, Father, you are the Lord of history, the Lord of time, the Lord of all creation, even the Lord of heaven. We praise you for who you are, God. We honor you and we bless you and we bow our heads in your presence. We thank you for this tremendous and profound section of Scripture that we will look at this morning. I pray that we will be impacted by the serious nature of this text. I pray, God, that we would see how profoundly you have spoken about the world, about the end of the world, about the things that you have planned for your creation. I pray, Lord, that we would see Christ in the center of this great plan as we look at this Bible text this morning. We do thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. First, Lord, for his cross for his precious blood, which was shed for our sins. We thank you for such a glorious plan to redeem us, your people, from our sins and to count us righteous, not with a righteousness of our own, but that of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for this privilege. And we thank you that his righteousness is perfect and that, Lord, as we stand in him, we stand justified before you. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. We thank you for uh, just bringing us here in this place. We ask that our worship would be acceptable to you, O oh God. And we ask that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to hear this word from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, that brings us back to our study in the book of 2 Thessalonians and in chapter 1. And last week we got through verse 5. And uh, so this morning I, I want to um, start by reading the whole context of the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians. Okay, I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is the word of God. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. 
Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, <clears throat> what I read to you was the context in which we find the scriptures that we're studying this morning. And the reason I did that was I wanted to explain this little exercise to you. As a Bible teacher, I, I not only want to teach you what the content of the section of text that we're studying is and what it means and how it applies to our life, what it is in the context that we find it, but I want to teach you how to understand the Bible for yourself and how to think about it as you're reading and studying and trying to understand the scripture. So this little exercise here is a discussion of context. Context. Because words have no meaning except the meaning that's defined by the context in which they're found. That's the nature of language, right? So if you will, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, particularly verses 6 and 7 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. But that verse, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7, for example, finds itself in the context, the greater context of the direct context where it's found, which is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 3 through 10. In that little section, there's a certain set of themes and thoughts and ideas that are kind of focused on that theme and so on and so forth. But even that little section of text is found in the whole context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, which kind of brings more insight and understanding to what these verses mean by themselves. Well, even the chapter of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 finds itself in the book of what? 2 Thessalonians, so that it finds its, its, its meaning in the context of 2 Thessalonians chapters 1 through 3, right? And so that little section of text is relevant to its broader context, which, if you will, is the whole book of 2 Thessalonians. Well, even the book of 2 Thessalonians finds itself in the context of what? The books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Why? Because 2 Thessalonians is Paul's response to their response to the letter of 1 Thessalonians that he wrote and sent to them. Then when they read the letter, they had more questions they sent back to Paul, 
which he writes back 2 Thessalonians to answer and clarify. So if you will, 2 Thessalonians, the book, finds itself in the context of, of both books or letters, if you will, Paul's letters to the church at Thessalonica. So that 2 Thessalonians finds its con- context in both letters to the Thessalonians. And even those letters to the Thessalonians find themselves in the context of what? The whole New Testament. So when Paul goes along, he starts talking about a church, and he starts talking about Christ, and he starts talking about persecution, and he starts talking about Jesus coming in flaming fire, dealing out retribution, and he goes and talks about the Antichrist in chapter 2. Well, all of that stuff finds its meaning and its context in the New Testament. Those are all New Testament ideas, New Testament concepts. They're very relevant to teaching throughout the whole New Testament, as you're going to see this morning, okay? But more than that, the New Testament finds itself in the context of what? The whole Bible. And even the New Testament has a very specific meaning and context in the context of the whole Bible, does it not? I, I was talking with some guy online, a little debate session going on this week, and he was telling me about how the Bible gives Christian permission to, uh, 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 for, or uh, gives Christians permission to uh, uh, stone their children when they're disrespectful. And you know, it's going on with all these ideas from the Mosaic civil law of the Old Testament. Okay, and the the fact of the matter was, this guy had no idea about this concept that the New Testament is, is, is found in the context of the whole Bible. What he doesn't understand was he was reading the Old Testament. He was reading the Old Covenant. He doesn't understand that the kingdom of God has come to its fulfillment in Christ. Amen? Jesus has ushered in a New Testament. Amen? A new covenant with God's people. With a new set of binding applications upon us. Right? And of course that discussion gets rather involved. That's the discussion of the whole Bible. That's the discussion of the New Testament in light of the Old Testament and the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Are you with me? So if you will, all of these things find themselves in these contexts. And you can't just go pull this one verse of Scripture out of its context and say, okay, here's what we're going to do with this. What we have to do is endeavor to understand it in its context and how it's relevant to all of its related parts. Are you with me? That's the idea of understanding the Bible in its context, which is why we've been here for four weeks now, and we're on verse 6 of chapter 1, right? Because we're taking very close examination of what the Bible says. We're seeking to understand every word, every phrase. We want to know what this means. And so we're not just lightly reading over it. These are the words of God. Amen? And we ought to take heed. And so that's what I hope to convey with this little discussion is it's an important matter what the Bible says in its context. It's extremely important when the Bible starts telling us about how the world is going to end and that it's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes in the sky in flaming fire with powerful angels to bring recompense to every man and woman on the planet. That's an important matter. Would you agree? Don't you think that if such a thing is true, we ought to pay very close attention to what God has said there? 
Absolutely. Of course we should. So that's the idea. So if you will, this is why we say we don't pull verses of Scripture out of context. And if we do pull them out of context, which we do regularly, what we do is we apply the meaning of that text as it, as it fits into its own context. Are you with me? So it's not that pulling a verse out of context is bad necessarily unless you assign a meaning to it that is not derived from its own context. You follow me? Okay? All right. So, that ought to get your mind churning. Okay, so then, a uh, little background. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is writing to the church, and the church is still under serious persecution. These Christians are being harmed for their faith. They are being publicly exposed in various ways. They are suffering much affliction, is the language of this section of text. And in chapter uh, 1, verses uh, 3 and following, Paul writes and he says, We ought always to give thanks for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. The love each one of you has toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Paul is addressing a group of afflicted Christians, a group of persecuted Christians who, as you might remember from our study in 1 Thessalonians, this little group of Christians had only been discipled for a few short weeks And then Paul was run out of town by an angry mob with the other apostles and left behind this little fledgling church, which which had only been taught a very short period of time. Well, Paul says, you became imitators of us apostles and you went out and sounded forth the gospel in your whole region. These little Thessalonian Christians had gone out and basically evangelized the entire province of Macedonia and also the sister province of Achaia. And so that this gospel had gone out from this little church. They heard the message, and they got up and did what the apostles were doing with it. They became imitators of the apostles. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians. Well, as a result of that, they came under serious persecution. And this is kind of where we ended last week. And it is this. People are generally accepting of Christians, provided that Christians hold their beliefs to themselves. It's as soon as you begin to preach the message of Christ, which is binding on all people, which, by the way, as a Christian, is is our commission, right? It's when we begin to tell them that there is a coming judgment, that God is going to judge the world in righteousness through the man whom he has appointed, even Jesus Christ, that people become inflamed. Why? Well, because you begin to speak to them about morality. And begin to speak about the fact that they're going to be exposed before a holy God who's going to bring judgment upon their life. And that the result of sins is death. And that the only way that God provided uh, uh, to escape this judgment and death because of sin is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That's the Christian message. Amen? So the problem is, People are very tolerant of Christians holding their own profession, especially because, for the most part, Christians are immoral people. 
For the most part, Christians in history have not been violent. They've been very kind and loving and gentle, as their Savior has taught them to be. Not in every case, but in, in most, mostly that's the case. And so um, they're, they're fine with you being a nice, gentle, loving, kind person. But when you begin to bring the question of morality and apply it personally to their life, they become enraged. They begin to say, well, who are you to judge? And they don't understand. We're not judging. We're simply proclaiming the message of the judge. And so what happens is, instead of just outright rejecting the message, they shoot the messenger. Are you with me? Well, that's no small problem. That's a big problem, as we're going to see here this morning. But the point is, is that, <clears throat> and this is where we ended last week toward the middle of page 73 there, why is it that these Thessalonians are suffering persecution? The simple answer is they believe and preach Christ and him crucified as God's only way of salvation for a world of rebellious sinners. And because of this, many unbelieving people so strongly oppose the message that they reject, ridicule, and even physically harm those who preach it. It seems evident to me that because the Thessalonians were so vocal about their faith that they were the objects of much affliction from unbelievers. You know, isn't this the way of Jesus? After all, wasn't Jesus the Son of God? Didn't he go about doing good and healing the sick and raising the dead and giving sight to the blind, healing the deaf and giving them sound? Did he not go about teaching good and giving wisdom to all who would hear and, and, and teaching us about the origin of life and the destiny uh, uh, of mankind? And, and in a very loving and gracious way, listen, tender Jesus, meek and mild. Amen? Indeed, he was the meekest man on all the earth. And the most powerful man who ever lived. Who can raise the dead but Jesus? By a spoken word, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? Up from the grave comes a dead man at the command of Jesus. That's who Jesus is. Amen? And yet he was the perfect son of God, and he came with the perfect wisdom of God, and what did people do to him? They put him on a cross. And they killed him. Why? Because they didn't like the message. Right? Of course, Jesus warned us. He said, look, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. No servant is greater than his master. The very things you see me endure, they're coming your way. He warned us, right? But he said, be of good cheer. Don't let that tribulation in the world overcome you because I have overcome the world. Your hope is not in this world. Your hope is beyond the grave. Amen? This life is but a light, short, momentary affliction which is uh, uh, achieving for us an eternal weight of glory, Paul says, that far outweighs the afflictions of this temporary life. Amen? Well, so the point is, when we begin to preach the message, most people in the world are perfectly accepting if you believe such a thing, but it is when you preach the message that they become inflamed. Learn here. The suffering and persecutions that Christians endure because they believe and preach Christ and Him crucified 
is genuine evidence of their real faith and genuine evidence of the unbelieving rejection of their persecutors. So what happens when somebody preaches Christ and another person persecutes them for that? Well, that's evidence that somebody really believes and somebody really doesn't. And that has engendered even a physical uh, uh, persecution. Okay, It's not always physical. Sometimes it's just ridicule. Sometimes it's just rejection. Sometimes it's they don't want anything to do with you. They think you're a bigoted religious fanatic. Other times, <laughs> if you were living during the time of Caesar Nero, they might roll you up in leather, soak you in oil, and burn you as lights for the garden party. Don't think for one minute that because we live in a free country where religious freedom is something that we all celebrate, that these things aren't going on around the world. Indeed, they are. Which brings us to verse 6. I'm going to read verse 5 and 6. Paul says, This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And so he says here, it's after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Here Paul speaks of the fundamental realities about sin, righteousness, and God's judgment. And so he says, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. Leon Morris comments on this and he says, In a moral universe, sin cannot go unpunished. And because God is just, we must expect the ultimate righting of wrongs. That God will repay seems an essential constituent of any teaching about God's judgment. And so here's who God is. God is a moral God. He's a holy God. He's perfect. And sin or if you will, evil, is an affront and an offense to a holy God. That's why mankind is under the penalty and the subjection of death. Because the wages of sin is? Death. And so this is the fundamental nature of God. He's moral. He's holy. He's filled with light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Right? And because mankind has sinned and rebelled against God, God in his righteousness must punish that sin. Otherwise, God's not just. How could God be just and allow evil in his universe without bringing recompense? This is the reason why Jesus came to die. He came to die as a substitute for those who would trust in him for the penalty of death so that we wouldn't have to die. And that's why those who believe in Christ receive eternal life. Because they get the penalty of death wiped away. The slate is clean by the blood of Christ. Amen? Amen. But somebody has to die for your sin. Either Christ is going to die for your sin, or you are going to die for your sin. But somebody's going to die for your sin. And this is very, very good. This is what it means for God to be good. That he punishes sin. Otherwise, he's not good. What kind of a judge would he be if he let all the criminals go free? 
Imagine the tremendous, tragic crimes that take place daily in our world. What kind of a judge would let such crimes go without punishment, without accountability? But see, this is what God does. God provides a substitute. He provides a way so that sin can be punished and yet we can be justified. That's what the gospel is all about. Amen? But Paul's pointing out to these suffering uh, Thessalonians, look, these people who are persecuting you, these people who are ridiculing you and running you out of your workplace and running you out of your homes, these people who are uh, beating you and killing you, let me tell you something. God is going to afflict them. That's what he's saying. And he says he's going to do that as a matter of his justice. As a matter of his justice. Paul says, for after all, that is, when it is all said and done in the end, when God brings his judgment, his judgment it will be just. It will be equitable. It will be righteous. It will be according to the perfect lawful standard of what is good and upright which can only be defined by the Almighty God, who himself is the only judge of the living and the dead, and altogether the standard of what is good and right and perfectly just. Family, how do we know what real justice is? How do we know what the guideline for morality in the world is? And I would like to suggest that that is the very character and nature of God himself. The character of God is the standard for what is righteous. Why? Because God is righteous. Because God is good. Therefore, his character is the standard of what is good. What God uh, approves of, what God gives approbation for, right, is that which is good and right and perfect and holy. And that which God rejects is that which is evil and wicked and abominable. It's that which is... Uh, not virtuous. We think of virtue, we think of God's characteristics. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and wisdom and justice, even wrath against what is evil. That's the definition of good. And the judge himself is the almighty God who is, in fact, himself the very standard of what is good and just and right. Amen? It is a matter of justice for Christ to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. For they were surely being treated unjustly by their persecutors. So here we have these Thessalonians who are enduring this tremendous persecution. And he says that God is going to repay with affliction their persecutors and that he does this as a matter of justice. One thing for sure is in view here. Christ is coming... And when he comes, he will settle the millennia-long disputes that have brought so many to persecute Christians throughout the ages. And if you think this is only an ancient problem, consider that more Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than in all other centuries combined. What I'm telling you is it's not an ancient problem. It's going on right now. In fact, it's going on to a degree right now which is unprecedented in all of history. If you want to see a display of this, go read um, what you might find on the Internet about uh, the tolerance of an Islamic society for Christians. 
or any other religion for that matter. Don't know if you know this, but in, in, in countries where Sharia law reigns and Islam is the dominating religion, there is less than one-tenth of one percent of other world religions in those countries. Now, many of them are in a process of being Islamized, <laughs> or whatever that term might be. But the point is, as Sharia law takes hold and takes firm grasp, before long, every other world religion is run out of that place. And then, of course, you're familiar with the 1040 window, right? That is the section that runs across all the way from southern Europe and northern Africa, all the way over into Eastern Asia and down into Indonesia. And that, that whole section that we, we see, which is uh, uh, dominantly Islamic in nature, uh, which is the focus of much Christian missionary activity now, with, within that uh, sphere, there is tremendous, tremendous persecution that goes on with Christians. And so here are Christians going and trying to tell, if you will, Muslims that they can be rescued from sin and death by trust in Christ. And what happens is violent rejection. Not just rejection, but violent rejection. In fact, if you're a Muslim and you convert to Christianity, your own family members will seek to kill you. And this is a fundamental teaching within their religious holy book, the Quran. It's not just something that, uh, you know, is the way they respond. It's actually what they're taught. God expects of them. Are you with me? So that and many other things. Of course, I use Islam as an example, but it's not the only one. There, there are many in Hinduism who severely persecute Christians. Extreme Hinduism is, is a severely uh, uh, violent uh, in, their, in its outburst against other religions. They are not tolerant in any stretch of the imagination. They will physically harm you for preaching the message. Well, in America, we have religious freedom. And this is a value that we hold, even as Christians. We, we hold this a value, that others should have the freedom to believe what they will. Amen? Amen. And certainly, the last thing in the world Christ would ever have us do is be violent with anyone. Amen? Amen. And so wherever violence has been done in the name of Christ, they, of course, have brought shame upon Christ and shame upon the Christian religion. Amen? But nevertheless... The scene here in 1 Thessalonians is, listen, all that affliction is taking place on you Christians because you keep telling people that they can be saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus himself is going to come and settle that dispute. And when he comes, it's going to be final. It is going to be a grand settlement. And so, if you will, that's what brings us to verse 7. He's saying in verse 5 and 6, you guys are suffering for the kingdom of God. Verse 6, God is going to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you. And verse 7, he's going to give you relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When? When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So here's what Paul's saying. Look, God is going to come and give you relief. And he's telling them when that's going to happen. Now, you remember that earlier in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul did the same thing. He kept telling them, you're waiting for his son from heaven who's going to come. And at his coming, he's going to come and he's going to deliver you. 
And in chapter 4, verses 15 and following, when he describes that coming, he says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud trumpet call, with the voice of the archangel. And, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we be with the Lord forever. Right? Of course, that passage of Scripture is what we commonly refer to as the rapture. Right? It's when Jesus comes and delivers his persecuted people and takes them with him to be forever. They are caught up off of the earth in a supernatural event, right? Whereby he's resurrecting all the dead in Christ at the same time. And from that point forward, listen, so shall we be with the Lord forever. You see, when Christ comes, his first order of business is deliverance for his persecuted people. That's what verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says. It says that Christian persecution is going to be relieved when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire. He says, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Here Paul clearly teaches that Christ's return is to be viewed as imminent That is, that the Thessalonians were told by Paul to expect Christ to come and give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, so that they are to eagerly await this deliverance from their persecutors. Of course, one major rule in Bible interpretation is to understand the historical context of the writing to grasp who the recipients of the writing are and what was the historical situation they find themselves in, including cultural influence, and cultural thoughts and expressions. So when we seek to to understand what the Bible means, what this ancient letter of the Bible means in its context to whom it was written, we have to understand it in its historical context. Who are these Thessalonians? Where is Thessalonica? What is the culture like? What is going on in that place? Why is Paul writing these things? All those are considerations when we want to understand and interpret what the Bible says. And so if you will, when, when he's speaking directly to them about their being relieved by this persecution, he's also saying that it's going to happen when Christ returns. And so he's saying to them, your relief is going to come when Jesus shows up in the sky with mighty angels. And he's teaching them to be expecting that. He's teaching them to be eagerly awaiting that. We call that eminency. The return of Christ is eminent. That means it's coming for certain and it's coming soon. That's the idea. It is clear from this passage that Paul was telling them that Christ's coming was eminent and that they should expect him to come and deliver them. Eminency was a theme in the words of Jesus himself and also the other New Testament writers, especially, for example, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, but also a main theme in Matthew 25 in the parable of the ten virgins. So, listen, even Jesus was teaching that his return was imminent. Okay? Here are some passages. For example, Matthew 24, verse 21. And also, um, uh, well, we'll read some context there. Verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying the same thing Paul said to those Thessalonians. 
He's saying there's going to be a great tribulation, but for the sake of my elect people, I'm going to cut those days short. This is what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians. You're being afflicted, but Christ is going to come and afflict those who afflict you when he returns from heaven in flaming fire. Jesus goes on there in the context of Matthew 24, down to verse 29, he says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And so, if you will, here, Jesus is saying very specifically that his coming is eminent that his coming is eminent and that he's going to appear in the sky and that all the nations of the earth are going to see this and mourn. That when he comes again, it's going to be a cataclysmic event for the whole world to view. And when he does that, he is going to come on the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. He's telling his people, look, I'm coming again. And how many times did he say this? In various places, right? Let not your heart be troubled, John 14.1. You believe in me, you believe in God, also believe in me, right? I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and what? Receive you unto myself, right? Jesus very clearly teaching, look, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to come again. And when I come again, I'm going to receive you. Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44, a little later in the chapter, he says there, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Verse 44, For this reason you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. What's Jesus' point? You need to be ready. You need to be thinking of his return as eminent. You need to be ready for his, re- his return, right? And of course, in the context of, of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, he explains what ready means. Do you remember the passage where he's talking to his uh, servants about being wise with their talents and the investments that God had given to them? And, and uh, with their, both with their time, with their talent, and also with their treasure, that they were to glorify God and be about the Master's work because the Master was coming soon and he was going to demand an accounting of all the gifts and talents he had given to the servant, right? Then he goes on, he has another parable. This is the parable of the ten virgins. And he says there's five wise virgins and there's five foolish virgins, right? And the five wise virgins, uh, what do they do? They have oil in their lamps and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come because when he comes, they need to light up the lamp so that they can see their way to meet the bridegroom and be taken by him. But then there's five foolish virgins. And what happens? They have no oil in their lamps. They're foolish. They're not paying attention to the signs of the times. They're not ready for the bridegroom's return. And when, the, when, the, when, the, uh, when they run out of oil, they run off to go get some oil. And guess what happens while they're gone? The bridegroom returns. And they're off buying somebody's wares somewhere. 
And they are seen as these foolish virgins. And what happens? The bridegroom takes the wise virgins and the foolish virgins get left behind. And what happens to those who get left behind? They knock on the door and they plead and they say, Sir, open up the door for us. But he says, Away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. What's the point of the parable? The point of the parable is you better be ready because the Lord is coming and you don't know when He's coming. So you've got to be ready and you've got to be wise because you don't want to be the ones who get left behind. Right? You with me? <clears throat> Christ is teaching that His coming is imminent. Well... Eagerly awaiting the Lord's return was a fundamental part of the Christian life in the teaching of the apostles as well. This wasn't just a theme in Jesus' teaching. Jesus wasn't the only one saying, look, I'm coming and I'm coming soon. You be ready. All the apostles were also teaching the same idea to Christians. For example, they frequently tied our Christian hope to the day of his appearing. For example, Paul writes in Titus 2 and he says, verses 11 through 13, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul's saying there. He's saying, look, here here we are Christians, and, and the grace of God has come and taught us to deny ungodliness. To live in a righteous and a holy way before God as we're doing what? Looking for that blessed hope and the glory of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How is a Christian supposed to live? Denying ungodliness, right? Denying ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, live righteously and godly in this present age while we what? While we look for and eagerly await the appearing of Christ. You see, here's the difference. There's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who love God and love Christ and who are eagerly awaiting His return. And then there are those who are not. Then there are those who are not. Which one are you? The writer to the Hebrews writes of this second coming and he says in verse chapter 9, verse 28, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. To who? To those who are eagerly awaiting Him. You see, Christ is coming a second time. For what? For salvation. For deliverance. The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And what? So shall we be with the Lord forever. See, when Christ comes again, He's going to take His people to be with Him. And there's not going to be any more mourning or dying or crying or pain. And that eternal bliss is eternal. It goes on forever. This life in the Bible, in the context of the New Testament, which is in the context of the whole Bible, the idea of this life is it is a light and momentary affliction. But that life which is eternal in heaven with God is bliss forever. Amen? This is the great hope of a Christian. This is what we are waiting for. 
We're eagerly awaiting for Christ to come and take us out of this place. This place is wicked. It's vile. It's filled with death and suffering. It's filled with anger and war and violence and injustice. We spend our lives seeking shelter from these things because they're so prevalent in our world. The family, the world is broken real bad. What the world needs is a king, a righteous king, who doesn't tolerate evil. And the Bible promises that very one to be Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Peter wrote of this. He said, therefore, verse 13 of chapter 1, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what Peter's saying. Same, same thing Paul was saying there in Titus. He's saying, he says, fix your hope completely on that grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here in Peter's language, it's a revelation. It's an appearing. Christ is going to be revealed. And he's telling the Christians to fix your hope firmly on that day. The Apostle John writes also in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And so even John is, is, is saying, Jesus is going to appear. And when he appears, we're going to be changed. We're going to be changed. We're going to become like him. Our bodies are going to be glorified. We're going to receive a glorified body just like Jesus did after his resurrection. Amen? Of course, we went through that in great detail back in chapter 4 when we talked about the dead in Christ rising and the hope of the resurrection that all Christians have. Amen? I'm not going to get this old broken body when Jesus comes. Amen? I'm going to get a new body, a glorified body, a body that's immortal in biblical language. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. This body is going to put on immortality. And this, this, this perishing body is going to become unperishable. Amen? It's an immortal body. It's a body that can never die. That's the hope of Christians. Amen? Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. Right? He says, At the last trumpet, in the twinkling of an eye, right, we're going to be changed. And this mortal, he says, will put on immortality. And the imperishable, the, the perishable will put on the imperishable. Right? And he says that's going to be the end when Christ destroys the last enemy, which is death. It's coming a point in time when death will no longer reign. As a matter of fact, it's pictured in the end of the book of Revelation where death itself gets thrown into the lake of fire. Never again to plague God's people throughout the eons of eternity. Amen? Jesus is coming. He's going to destroy death. For those who are eagerly awaiting him. Amen? Mm -hmm. 
Therefore, we Christians are to be eagerly awaiting Christ's return, as they were, being watchful of the signs of the times, and his return draws ever nearer. See here that Paul was comforting these Christians, telling them that they would receive relief and vindication personally from Christ himself when he is revealed from heaven in flaming fire. So here's Paul, and he's telling these Thessalonians that they're going to get relief to their persecution when Jesus comes again, when he appears in all of his glory with his powerful angels. Well, that brings up the question of preterism. Okay, so... You're, you might have heard me talking about this term. I'll spell it here for you. Preterism. Preterism. I'll read you a definition. If you're on the email list, I sent you a big, long email this morning, just before I left the house, about preterism. So if you want some further reading, there's some really good reading there. Preterism is a system of prophetic interpretation that understands virtually all of biblical prophecy to already be fulfilled. The second coming of Christ and all attending events, the resurrection, etc., are all understood as now past. Christ has come, the kingdom has come, and the resurrection has occurred all in a spiritual way. Okay? That's the definition of preterism. And you may think, well, what kind of a wacky thing is that? I never heard that before. Well, you may be surprised to find out it's very prevalent. It's very prevalent. How many of you know who the Bible answer man is? Hank Hennegraaff. You know who he is? He's a preterist. Now, he's, we'll, we'll go easy on him. He's a partial preterist. He's, he's not a full preterist. So, if you will, he has a variation of that definition I just read you. Nevertheless... He believes, for the most part, biblical prophecy has been fulfilled. Uh, So, why do I say that this text brings up the idea of preterism? I'm going to explain that to you. Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, look, you guys are being persecuted. He's comforting them by telling them that God is going to repay those who are persecuting them, and he's he's going to afflict them when Jesus comes. In heaven, in flaming fire with his powerful angels. Now, what's the problem with that? They're all dead, and Jesus never came. You think that's a problem? I think that's a huge problem. (laughs) Are you with me? I understand it's not a problem when we understand it rightly. That's what you may mean by, no, it's not a problem. But what I'm saying is, if you just take the words literally for what they're saying... It sounds like there's an unfulfilled promise. Would you agree? Well, this is one of the key texts that preterists use to say, no, wait a minute, time out. Those things did happen. Christ did come in flaming fire with his mighty angels in 70 A.D. And that's when the Jewish system was was, uh, destroyed. The temple was, was destroyed. Jerusalem was overcome. The Jewish religion came to an end, right? In the, in the minds of those who use this interpretation in 70 A.D. And um, they look at the events of 70 A.D. as being the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy, including the second coming of Christ. So you, you might wonder, well, how can that be? Because you know what the Bible says about the second coming of Christ. And it's 
quite a bit more cataclysmic than a Roman army destroying a Jewish temple. Amen? Amen. So we all look at that and say, well, no, that's yet to come. Well, let me speak just a little bit about preterism. But what of the question of preterism? Whereas these texts are read as to say that because eminency was taught to that generation, that that generation was in fact going to see the fulfillment of these things. To that I answer that surely some of the things of the Olivet Discourse did have some fulfillment, but the full scope of events spoken of by Jesus did not in fact come to pass. So if you will, Jesus, the Olivet Discourse is where Jesus answered the question for the disciples, Lord, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And there in Matthew 24 or also in Mark 13 or also in Luke 21, Jesus answers their question. And when he answers their question, he gives them a whole bunch of details about what will be the signs of his coming and of the end of the age, all the way leading right up to his coming in power and glory in, in heaven, okay, from heaven. And, and um, when he does that, there are all these signs that are listed there in the text. What I'm saying is, in regard to answering the question of preterism is, some of the things that Jesus said were going to happen did happen. For example... He told the, the disciples that the temple was going to be destroyed, didn't he? That's what provoked their question. They're sitting there on the Mount of Olives. If you look over from the Mount of Olives, you see there the Temple Mount, right? Of course, now what you see is the Dome of the Rock, right? But you can see the remnants of the whole Temple Mount are all there. And, and uh, of course, in their day, Herod's Temple was there. Big, bright, and glorious, amazing architecture. An unbelievable building, Herod's Temple. And uh, Jesus says, a day is coming when not one stone will be left in that place, but all will be torn down. And uh, that came to pass in 70 AD. That happened. The Roman army came in there, and they leveled that place. They, in fact, threw every single stone down. You know why? Because the place caught on fire when they ransacked it. And the fire melted the gold, and the gold went into the foundation stones. So they tore the whole building to pieces, including the foundation, just so they could dig out the gold. So Jesus' prophecy was literally fulfilled. Every stone was torn down. Not one stone remained on another. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that um, there are several things in the context of what Jesus said there that have not come to pass. For example, the Great Tribulation has not yet come to pass. The gospel has not been preached to the whole world. And Christ has not come in the clouds with power and great glory with all of his angels and raptured the church. Those things are all seen there in the text of Matthew 24. To be fair, preterists do think that these events are analogous to actual events that happened before or during the end of the age of the Old Covenant and the destruction of the temple and Jewish system in 70 A.D., reading these texts in an allegorical manner. In other words, when they read something like, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, they don't really think it means the real sun and the real stars and the real moon. What they think it means is, is that there'll be a rumbling in the governmental powers of earth. And the way they personally apply that is the Jewish religious and economic system is going to be completely destroyed, which is what happened in 70 A.D. 
It didn't completely extinguish Judaism because the writings of Judaism remained. But what it did do was there were some uh, 1.5 million people living in Jerusalem at the time of 70 AD. 1.1 million of them were slaughtered by the Romans. Okay? It was a massive, massive destruction that took place. And uh, so if you will, up until that time, Jews were sacrificing blood sacrifices in their temple in Jerusalem. But when that destruction took place, guess what? They put an end to offering and sacrifice. Since that time, the Jews have never offered a single blood sacrifice according to the way God prescribed for them in the Old Testament. Okay? So preterists feed heavily off of this. And they say, see, what happened was the Old Covenant age was coming to an end. The New Covenant age was beginning in Christ. And here is this, they, they read Matthew 24 as an allegorical thing saying that this is the Jewish system being torn down. Effectively. Of course, I'm making very general statements. There's a lot to that whole issue, okay? But nevertheless, trying to sum that up, it is my firm conviction, however, that these are not allegories. And I read these texts in a historical grammatical sense, fully expecting the literal fulfillment of these events at the future second coming of Christ. That makes me a futurist, as opposed to a preterist. You understand? Those are the two opposing viewpoints. One says prophecy's all been fulfilled already. One says, no, we're looking to the future for a fulfillment of prophetic events. Okay? Under which, a futurist, under which amill, postmill, and premillennialism are classified. I don't want to throw you for a loop here, but you, you're familiar with the discussion of amillennialism and postmillennialism and premillennialism, right? Premillennialism is where we believe Christ will return before the millennial kingdom of Revelation 20. Amillennialism says, no, there is no millennium. That's just an allegory of a thousand years in Revelation 20, right? And post-millennialism believes almost the same thing as amillennialism, except they believe that the thousand-year period is, is going to happen, and then Christ is going to return after the millennium, Okay? That's the arguments of amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism, of which I myself and the other elders here at the church are all premillennialists. Okay? We believe Christ is going to return before the millennial kingdom. And he's going to establish the millennial kingdom on the earth by a literal reading of Revelation chapter 20. You follow me? Okay, that makes us all futurists. Why? Because we believe Christ is still yet to come in the future. And when he comes, he's going to show up in heaven in flaming fire with all of his angels and he's going to bring recompense on those who are harming his people. And he's going to bring all mankind to justice and to judgment. And he's going to establish a physical kingdom on the earth and his throne is going to be in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. And Jesus Christ is going to rule there for a thousand years. Read Revelation 20. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Okay? So, if you will, that makes us a futurist when we see those things as yet future and we believe those prophecies are yet to happen. Okay? Are you with me? Yeah. Okay, good. I got at least half of you. <laughs> okay, then. So, then, 
On this topic, I would say that our text here in 2 Thessalonians is a bright shining evidence that the coming of Christ is yet future because of the simple fact that Christ did not come to that generation of Thessalonians who received this letter and delivered them from their persecutors. In fact, Christians have been undergoing persecution for some 2,000 years now. And this deliverance by a glorious appearing of Christ coming from heaven has yet to occur. Are you with me? Here's what I'm saying. This text in and of itself is evidence that preterism can't be true. Why? Because the Bible is promising that Christ is going to come and put an end to Christian persecution by a mighty appearing in the sky with mighty angels. Are you with me? And since that has yet to occur, we are still what? Waiting for it. Right? Okay then. That, however, does not mean that we are to dismiss Jesus and the apostles' teaching about eminency, but are, in fact, to be eagerly awaiting his return and deliverance. We simply believe that the texts on eminency will directly apply to that generation that is alive at the second coming of Christ. So I think if you are a, a, a thinking, rational Christian, you ought to look at this and you ought to say, wait a minute, that promise wasn't fulfilled. And then you ought to have a corresponding answer to why you believe then that the second coming of Christ is still yet future. Are you with me? I hope I'm providing that to you. It's all here in writing if you want to go away and study it. Okay? But uh, the fact of the matter is we are still awaiting Christ's return. And with that, I need to end because we're out of time. Let's pray. God, our Father, we, we praise you that, Lord, we have the hope that you're going to come and put evil to flight. That, God, you're going to bring this present world system to an end. And, Lord, we realize that Jesus, he is the Lord. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And that there's going to come a day when no one will ever defame his name again. Neither will they harm his people. I pray, God, that you would help us to, in fact, behave like his people. That, Lord, we would be gentle lambs, filled with your joy. Peacemakers, God, who want peace who live in peace, who are a benefit and a blessing to those who come into contact with us. But Lord, at the same time, our lives are a shining light of your righteousness and of faith in you. Oh God, help us, even when we're persecuted, Lord, and ridiculed and rejected, to remain steadfast, and giving others the loving message of how they can be reconciled to you and not come under judgment at the great day. We thank you for the privilege that we have to be messengers of your gospel. We ask that you give us boldness to speak it, and Lord, may we do it with respect and kindness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.